Well, please open up your Bibles to uh, Luke, if you are still there, and let us take note of the key text that I want to preach from today. Let me read it again. One of the criminals who was hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds. But this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And he said to him, Truly, I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise. What is the most improbable thing that you have ever witnessed? The reversal of fortunes or an 11th hour deliverance is the stuff of literary dynamite. Perhaps you've read of an army that has snatched victory from the jaws of defeat. Or maybe you've read a story like The Prince and the Pauper, and you find out that the one you thought was the uh, poor uh, peasant turned out to be the heir to the throne. Or perhaps you've read of a man who viciously attacked the Christian church and later became uh, the most effective uh, apostle in all uh, history. The text before us contains an even more uh, dramatic change as Luke pens these words for us by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God through Christ Jesus and for your comfort. Jesus wants you to know that if at his weakest he can save the vilest, then he is able to save you from your vile sins. I'd like to open up this text under three observations. First is the criminal death of Jesus Christ. Second, the sovereign grace of God in salvation. And third, the assurance which is ours in Christ Jesus. First, the criminal death of Jesus Christ. When our Lord was crucified, he was not alone. He was hung between two criminals, bad men. Criminals, our text says. Who were these men? What were their names? It is not really necessary for us to know, but we do know that they were real men. They were bad men deserving the sentence that they were enduring. Sadder still, after death, there awaited them a eternal punishment for their sin. They are robbers, thieves, the text says. They are enemies of the state, perhaps a killer or worse. Only these terrible sorts were crucified by the Romans. And the paths of their lives were certainly a downward spiral that has led them to this uh, tragic end. And they were not deterred from their wickedness, even at the point of death, because they are here reviling the Son of God, 
Mark says those who were crucified with him also reviled him. Their lives were vile, they were vile, and their conduct of their lives was an offense to God. And worse yet, they were reviling the Son of God in their last moments of their wicked existence. They were about to be cast into Hades, cursing and reviling God, destined for hell and the final judgment. These criminals were real men, but they are also representative of the human race. Christ is also being identified here with criminals, dying as a criminal, dying a criminal's death, even though he was the holy son of God. It is is important to see a comparison and a contrast in our text. Criminals, who the narrative says, uh, present uh, present to us guilty men and Christ, the innocent one, is reckoned guilty in order to be the actual representative of all who believe. This moment is the very fulcrum of history. It is the hinge upon which the door of eternity is opening and closing. And a door was opening that day. A new and living way of salvation was about to open. We read in Hebrews 10.20, the new and living way that he opened up for us through the curtain, that is, through his flesh. Jesus said that I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no man can see the Father but through me. And this is the only way of redemption for mankind. Christ is crucified between criminals as a criminal in fulfillment of prophecy. Isaiah 53, 5 says, but he was pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him and by his wounds we were healed. And the earliest creeds contain these familiar words. We read them this morning. Suffered under Pontius Pilate and was crucified. It was not enough that Jesus Christ die, but he had to die the death of a criminal. His death was the sentence both of the civil magistrate and God, the avenger of sin. And why is that? so that the death of Christ could be clearly seen as punishment for sin and rebellion. The death was a legal penalty because it was in that context in which he could pay for the sins of his people. Christ paid a legal debt to God the Father, the debt that all mankind owes. A natural death would not have fit the bill, literally. An accidental death would not suffice because it would have been in the wrong category. And God further ordained that he hang between two criminals to emphasize the point that Jesus died as a criminal. Isaiah says in the Lexham English Bible translation, he was taken by restraint of justice. Verse 8, the Lexan version, though it is awkward, 
brings out more clearly that this was the oppression from a magistrate. It was legal, though illegal. The ESV says in, in oppression and judgment in verse 9, and they made his grave with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence and there, there was no deceit in his mouth. This is the sense in which God reckons or attributes righteousness to those who believe. At the, time, at the same time, he uh, imputes all of our sinful actions to Christ on the cross. In the same way, Adam's sin is attributed to us, in fact, ruining us so that we add our own sins to his. Our sins are imputed to Christ. Paul writes, For if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, how much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ? So Jesus Christ is the sacrificial lamb executed as a criminal, as a substitute between two bad men. This is the criminal death of Christ, but it is an epic turn of events that is about to take place, which surprises us. Our next observation is the sovereign grace of God in salvation. Again, Luke writes, one of the criminals rebuked the other saying, do you not fear God since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward for our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said to Jesus, he says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. It's an amazing turn of events. This horrible day became the most fortunate day for this man. Think again at the improbability of this event. This man born somewhere, his nationality and identity are withheld. He represents us. He started off as a sinner and added to his sin every day. His life became quite corrupt. Our text says they both reviled Christ at first, so he was no better off than the thief that he was hung with. He had done nothing deserving mercy. He was guilty and vile, and as he lived, he was now going to die. Wicked, at war with men, and at war with God. He did nothing to deserve mercy, and now he could do nothing. As Arthur Pink eloquently says, what could he do? He could not walk the paths of righteousness, for there was a nail through either foot. He could not perform any good works because there were nails through either hand. God decided that this troubled man's life would intersect with the life of his precious son as both men's lives were ebbing away 
God ordained to magnify his grace and show the saving might of his son, Jesus Christ. This robber ceases cursing and he looks at this quiet man beside him like a lamb before its shearers silent. Jesus did not cry out. He looked at this man who had no form or majesty that he should be looked at, no beauty that he should be desired. He was disfigured. He was beaten. He was beaten to the point that he did not even resemble a man, as Isaiah prophesied. He was as one from whom men hide their faces. A man at the point of death. The Jews rejected him. They didn't understand him. They didn't want him. How could this man lead them to victory over the Romans? How can this carpenter slash rabbi rule the world from Jerusalem? How is this guy David 2.0? He was not radical enough for the zealots, not ascetic enough for the Essenes, not religious enough for the Pharisees, not political enough for the Sadducees. He was a man of sorrows. He was despised. He was rejected. He was a man acquainted with grief and They esteemed him not. We will not have this man reign over us, was what they cried out. But between verses 39 and 40, something happened. Something unseen. Suddenly, unexpectedly, this criminal, who you would not cross the street to spit upon, suddenly has a change of heart. He repents. He confesses Jesus As he had been even reviling Christ, he now stops, he turns, and he rebukes the other criminal. And he says, do you not fear God since we are under the same condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward. He confesses our sin, his sin by saying we are receiving our due reward. He confesses the righteousness of Jesus, but this man has done nothing wrong. Who knows what else he had heard about Jesus before this point? It may have been much, it may have been little. We read in the next chapter how the disciples walking to Damascus said to Jesus, ironically, Are you the only one who has not heard what had happened? They've killed the Messiah. We don't want to speculate, but this man heard and saw enough to confess the deity and lordship of Jesus, as if to say, I know who you are. I know you are the king of kings and the sovereign Lord, the Messiah. He says, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He confesses, I deserve this. He repents by stopping his cursing. He stops his unbelief. He puts his faith in Jesus Christ. This has got to be the greatest trophy of grace in all the world. Salvation is by grace alone. While Jesus is suffering, the Holy Spirit is at work. 
His infinite power is sustaining the soul of Jesus, giving life and breath to every living thing, upholding the whole world by his very word. Yet he reaches out to save this vile sinner. He says, you are mine. You're one of my lost sheep. This one who opened the eyes of the blind men to see that Jesus Christ was the Son of God, truth and righteousness incarnate. It is the spirit that forms faith in the heart. And he believed on the Savior. The Holy Spirit did a quick work of grace in this man's heart. Like Lydia in Philippi, he opened his mind that he would believe. Like Saul of Tarshish, who persecuted the church, he changed, he believed. He saw the one whom he despised was the one who loved him unto death. The one he thought was the enemy of God was in fact the beloved son of God, the promised redeemer. Does anyone doubt that faith and repentance is from God alone? Here are two wicked men in the same situation, probably the same circumstances. Was one thief better than the other thief? Was one thief maybe a Robin Hood? No, our text doesn't say that. Was he persuaded to believe? Did he hear an invitation to come to Jesus while the church sang all 16 verses of Just As I Am? No. Did he use his intellect to weigh the evidence and make a decision for Christ? Was he loved into the kingdom through uh, nurturing relationships by people who built socio-economical bridges to his community? No. No. It was because this thief's name was written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Because God the Father set his love on him. And why? Because, wait for it, absolutely no reason in the man. The reason was within the heart of God. God desiring to show his wrath and make his, uh, known his power, endured with much patience with vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order that he might make known the riches of his glory on vessels of mercy which he had prepared beforehand for glory. That's the why. Are you offended at this? He could have been a regular crook, a petty thief. He could have been MS-13 or some other violent group. Or like today's world leaders who fleece billions and kill millions without concern. He could have been one who takes great pleasure in sin, even vile sin. And would you say, how can that one be saved? Is it only the mildly wicked whom Christ died for? 
Are you offended that he had no hand in his repentance? That he did nothing to deserve his salvation? The text does not indicate he reasoned his way to faith. To the contrary, the scripture presents the choice of belief and receiving the gift as something that the spirit does within the heart of man. It's something more than the general call of the gospel. It is an effectual call aimed at those whom the Father has set his unconditional love. Our confession says in chapter 10, paragraph 2, the effectual call is of God's free and special grace alone, not from anything at all foreseen in the man, nor from any power or agency in the creature co-working with his special grace. The creature being wholly passive therein, being dead in sin and trespasses until being quickened and renewed by the Holy Spirit. It is the implicit and explicit teaching of the scripture in both testaments that grace is a work of God. Salvation is by grace. Psalm 96.8 It is for the glory due his name. Psalm 98.1 Jeremiah 13, 23, Acts 13, 48, all who were appointed believed. Romans 9, 16, it was not anything good or bad in uh, Jacob and Esau, but that God would be glorified. Ephesians 2, 8 and 10, you all memorize that. 2 Timothy 1, 9 and so on. Do you think God is unjust? If he saves one and not saves all. The real astonishment is that he saves any at all. He saves like he punishes to get glory for himself. He saves out of the overflowing love of his nature. He saves to gain the glory which is due his name. And that should be enough for us. The Spirit of God uh, granted repentance and faith. The man simply believed upon whom the Spirit revealed was the King of Kings, the soon-to-be-glorified Messiah. But yes, the man truly believed. Yes, he exercised his will. Yes, he became obedient to the truth. But it was all a result of the Holy Spirit uniting him with Christ and granting him repentance, forming faith in his heart and effectively calling him with an irresistible call. He called upon the name of the Lord. Jesus said, I am the way. Come to me, all you who are burdened and heavy laden, and I will give rest for your souls. And he came. He came with nothing but his sin and great need. He confessed his sin. He confessed Christ. He said, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Have mercy on me, O son of David. Salvation is from God. It is from the grace of God. It originates in the heart of God. It is a gift. And in the midst of the criminal death of Jesus Christ, we see the sovereign grace of God and salvation. 
And all this happened without a word from our Lord until he speaks words of assurance. And that is our final observation, the assurance which is ours in Christ Jesus. Jesus' words to the wicked savior, sinner were definitely words of salvation, but yet more they were words of assurance. And if any poor soul needed assurance and hope, it was this wicked man. After a lifetime of wickedness, he's now standing uh, on the edge of death, staring at the gun barrel of judgment. And he's suddenly awakened to his sin. Can you imagine what this was like? Imagine being awoken from sleep and finding yourself on the ledge of a building at night with gale force winds and the building's being demolished. I mean, how bad could it be? But he's convicted of sin and he believes even in the middle of this horror. And hear the words of Jesus. He said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. Excuse me. Jesus prefaces his statement with this interjection, truly. Sometimes it is truly, truly. There was probably only time for one truly here. In the Greek, it's amen, which is imported from the Hebrew word, amen. It means <laughs> worthy or surely. Amen uh, as a verb is uh, to believe, to make firm, to put trust in, to be assured. And Jesus says, truly, I say to you, Jesus Christ, truth incarnate, you'll be with me in paradise. George, John records uh, in his Revelation chapter 3, verse 14, and the angel of the church in Laodicea write, this is what the amen, the faithful and true witness, the originator of God's creation says. That is who spoke assurance to this poor man. The author and perfecter of faith. Jesus hears his confession, his plea. He knows this poor soul is one of his sheep who was lost and now found. He's found on the edge of a the cliff of eternity, and he speaks comfort to him, even as he himself is suffering the wrath of God for his sin. Jesus is mighty to save. Jesus could turn to this man and say, your sins are forgiven. Because he is the priest who makes intercession for men. Earthly priests dare to say, your sins are forgiven, but it can only be in the context of this high priest who has the authority to forgive sin. Sin can only be forgiven in the context of faith in the sacrificial lamb of God. Earlier, when Jesus was about to heal a man, he told this man, your sins are forgiven. And the Pharisees went nuts. They said, wait, you can't forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. And Jesus, perceiving their thoughts, answered and said to them, 
Why are you reasoning in your hearts? Which is easier to say your sins are forgiven you or to say, get up and walk. But in order that you may know that the son of man has authority on earth to forgive sin, he said to the one who is paralyzed, I say to you, get up, pick up your stretcher and go home. And immediately he stood up before them, picked up what he had been laying on and went home glorifying God. Luke 5, 10, 20 through 25. Jesus is delivering the payment of sin to the Father so that he could bring the Father's love to this poor man and everyone who believes on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what a comfort it is, even in the midst of trouble, to hear the Son of God himself assure you from his own lips And here this man, this very young convert with a lot of guilt and baggage, more guilt and baggage than we probably have, heard from his Lord. But congregation, it is no less true of you and me. It's recorded in this spectacle, this amazing but brief narrative, so that you too would be encouraged and be blessed by the Lord's words. The word of God recorded for us is more sure than what your ears will hear. I know because I'm losing my hearing, (laughs) but the word of God is still true. I could be blind, but I could see my Savior through eyes of faith. So these words are for you and me as well. Some think, well, I'm not a thief. I'm not on death row. But these thieves, these robbers represent mankind. You were born a sinner. You have that sin debt. Your father Adam robbed God of the glory due his name, turned the world over to the devil, and he is the catalyst of all sin and death and destruction from then till now. You and I have not paid God the glory due his name. It is the greatest commandment. You may be innocent of civil violations. You may be an Albert Schweitzer or a Sister Teresa, but you are guilty of breaking God's law nonetheless. Jesus said a lustful thought is as the sin of fornication. Hateful anger is murder. Pride is the sin of idolatry. Yet Jesus Christ paid for all of that sin to the Father, for all his sheep who will believe on him. And he calls you to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. He calls you to cast all your cares upon him. All have sinned. But there are here today some who are still in their sin, who have not confessed 
Christ and believed. Even maybe some of you children have not yet come to Jesus Christ. Christ calls you to put your faith in him, to believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for yourself, for your soul's salvation. And all of you who have put your hope in Christ Jesus, if you are in distress or doubt, go to the Savior again and read afresh what he has done for you, how he has paid the price for your sin, how he has given you an un, uh, so many promises, <coughs> and that he promised to vanquish death and pain and bring us into paradise with him. To be with Christ in glory is paradise. It is paradise and glory that we will share with the Son of God. Read again in the pages of your Bible the many promises that are yours in Christ. Jesus prayed to you, or to the Father for you, that you would believe. And he promises to sustain you by the work of his Spirit, to advance you in holiness, to comfort you in illness. He has promised never to leave or forsake you. He has promised that when you pray in the Father's name, it'll be answered. The Bible promises that the work that he began, he will complete. Amen. Let's pray. Dear God in heaven, 